You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. And so we will be spending our time there in the first 11 verses. I'll read a little bit of what we went through last week in chapter 3. And so if this is one of the first times you've opened the Bible, you'll see that the big numbers are the chapters and the smaller numbers are the verses, the way that the later scholars helped us to navigate these things. They originally, they didn't have numbers, but for us, they, they helped kind of organize our journey through it. And so we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be in the fourth chapter. And up to this point, Matthew, one of the disciples of Jesus, who had his life changed by being called to follow Jesus, seeing who he really was through his teaching, but also encountering what he accomplished for them, is telling us and trying to introduce us to this Jesus. And Matthew wants us to know a few things. And the most important ones are that Jesus, and you'll see even in this particular, this particular passage, uh, Matthew is always referring to Old Testament passages, the story of God's revelation to a people, choosing them by grace to, to be set apart, that he would be their God, they would be, their, they would be God's people. Not because they were particularly special. In fact, in fact, the Bible even says it was the opposite of that. It wasn't because they were special or righteous or even large. It was because they were so weak. It was because they were small that God displayed his grace by choosing the weak, by choosing the small to, to introduce himself, to reveal himself to the world. And so Matthew was always making reference to that. And you'll see even in chapter Chapter 4, Jesus does the same thing. So that is for us meant to be an encouragement that this thing that God has been doing from the beginning, fulfilled for us in Jesus, is not plan B. There is a God who has a plan and who's working all things together for good. There is a good God in charge of all of this. That might be one of the best mysteries for you to contemplate, especially this morning. If you're not a believer, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or, or maybe you're just not sure. Maybe you're deeply skeptical about that. I'm so glad you're here. I would love to introduce you, as Matthew does, to who Jesus is and begin to invite you to consider what it might, what it might look like to, to believe what Matthew says. Because the second thing that Matthew wants us to know about this Jesus is that he's what he would call a Messiah king. That he is a king that's common, and he will preach of this kingdom that he is bringing in himself. We'll see more of that in the weeks to come. We saw a little bit of it even last week in the preaching of John the Baptist, who was a forerunner, an introduction, an opening act, as it were, to Jesus. And so we're invited to consider what it means to see Jesus as a king, a redeemer, a lord over all things. I shared this with you uh, to, to begin with, and, and as we walk through the, the Gospel of Matthew, the very last verses of the Gospel of Matthew are this, that Jesus says, the last words that Matthew records, Jesus came and said to them, all of his disciples and the people who had gathered then, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, now go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Matthew is telling us a story about a king who is coming and a king who has all authority over all things. And while at first glance and maybe in the first time you hear that, that sounds awful, some authoritarian king is going to have lordship over everything. He's going to be sovereign and rule over everything. That sounds terrible. And yet Matthew wants you to know that along the way, you're going to be introduced to this king and you're going to realize how good he is and how, what good news it is that he's doing this. So beginning in verse 13 of chapter 3, this connected story of Jesus being anointed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and then for the first 11 verses, led by the Holy Spirit out to experience testing and trial. So beginning of verse 13 of chapter 3, then Jesus 
came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they, shall, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, Angels came and were ministering to him. I pray that this becomes more than just words and ink on a page, but the very voice of God for us. Maybe a voice of comfort, of forgiveness, of, of rest for the weary. Matthew wants us to see who Jesus is. He's introducing Jesus to us. And so, in, in many ways, in rapid fire, you'll see this week and the weeks to come, up to his first massive public teaching, known as the Sermon on the Mount, from this chapter on, you'll see in rapid succession, in many ways, Jesus coming out. That is, introducing himself to the public. His public ministry and his public preaching and his public work in many ways, is, is kind of coming onto the scene. And so last week we saw that it began with a, a forerunner. That is, we saw a picture of something, a movement that we, that we find ourselves in, and, and we even see that, that, in this sense, like Jesus is, has called us to participate in this. The last words of the Gospel of Matthew tell us this, and that is the baptism of John. That is, people who were confessing their sins and repenting were being baptized, a sign of their purification by God. And so we saw last week that Jesus identifies with the repentant sinner. 
What do I mean by that? He identifies with them, and, and that's the, one of the first times of many, I would say, for the rest of this, this whole book in which Jesus identifies with the sinner. He takes the place of the sinner. And you heard, as we read there, the word of John kind of in his questions points to this, right? Jesus, you're the perfect one. You should be baptizing me. What, what are you doing in... What are you doing swapping places with me? What are you doing? I should be the one baptized by you, and here you are taking the place. It's kind of as if he was saying to Jesus, like, don't you understand this, this place over here where people are being baptized? This is where the repentant sinner is, right? What are you doing in that place? And it's meant to introduce us to what Jesus will do. He will take the place of repentant sinners. He will do for them what they cannot do for themselves. And so this week, the, while the Spirit of God comes on top of these people, or on top of Jesus, like in a, in a way that can only be described, it says here, a descending like a dove, right? What a mysterious thing to have seen. Rests upon Jesus, and the, the delight of God, the pleasure of God is spoken over him. The very next thing that happened, you see it in that word then. It's a, it's a loaded conjunction. It's deeply connected even though it's a separate account, it's connected. That is, the Spirit comes to rest upon him and then immediately leads him. Some of your translations will say it like pushed or drove him out into the wilderness so that he would be tested and experience trial. So I want you to see there's some fulfillment of story here. There's some fulfillment of longings here. There's, I believe, a lot of practical instruction. I want to try to dig through as best we can. But finally, there's an introduction to who Jesus is and what he's like. What his kingdom is going to be like. In short, I want to put it this way. Jesus succeeds where we fail. Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You see it in the way that he stood up to the temptation of the devil, as we just read, but then also, not just the temptation of the devil that he faced, but in the wandering of the wilderness, of the wilderness, he fulfills a story that would have meant a lot to the original hearers. So let's begin to kind of walk through that together. Then, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was led by the Spirit up into the wilderness to be tempted. Uh, that is like a, a face-to-face squaring off with the devil. Now, there's a lot going on here, but let's, let's, let's see if we can kind of point to some things that will help us see who Jesus is, like Matthew wants us to see, but also give us some practical principles to, to, to contemplate, and I, I, I would encourage even to be changed by. Jesus was led up by the, uh, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, tested, to experience trial, to experience, in many ways, a picture of what the people of Israel had experienced when they crossed the Jordan, and, or excuse me, before they crossed the Jordan, they, they were delivered through the Red Sea and then wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they really wished they could go back, and they really wished they could go back into slavery rather than be led by the presence of God. So just get that. The whole Trinity shows up at the end of chapter 3, right? I say Trinity, if you're, maybe if you're new to the Bible or Christianity, you'll hear us use this word, and you won't find that word in the Bible. It's simply what Christians try to do to describe what it is that's happening here. That the God who created the universe came to be with us and for us, and His Spirit calls us to Him and keeps us safe. 
That's the picture of how God works and distinct persons, but, but in his oneness. God is, God is one. God is the Lord, we would say, in, in, in Deuteronomy 6. The Lord is one, and yet showing himself, introducing himself in different per, per, persons who are distinct. Now, is that mysterious? Is that difficult to explain? Absolutely. Libraries have been committed to explaining it a whole lot better than I just did in a few sentences. Uh, there are some great YouTube videos that can uh, get you along your way as well. But in this sense, like, this is a mystery, that God would come to be with us in Christ. But think of it as just like a pinnacle. Wow, this is the best. And we, we saw last week that in those who believe in Christ, who are united in him, receive what God says about Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, a, a famous preacher, uh, says it this way, that this was the greatest sermon ever spoken by the greatest preacher. Did you hear it? That God publicly shared with the world who Jesus is. This is my son, beloved, the one I love, and I have great delight and pleasure in him. And for those of us in Christ, God the Father speaks that to us. And you would think, that's amazing. What a blessing. And immediately following that great blessing, what a, what a powerful moment to have audibly heard God the Father express his delight and pleasure and then immediately face trial. I don't believe this is an accident. In many ways, I believe not only in Christ, but in Christianity, there is a pattern we see here. Great blessings always lead to great trial and temptation. Great blessings always lead to great trial and temptation. I say that because in many ways, what we would call is a, 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 an aberration, a distortion of the gospel. You'll hear us maybe speak of as what is called the prosperity gospel. It's this belief, and man, it's, it's, been, it's been exported around the world. And this subtle belief that if you trust and love God, everything will go well for you. That, that if, you, if, if you place your faith in Jesus, he will make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, right? And, the, and I mean, great, except for the Bible, right? That's a problem. That isn't even true of Jesus, right? Even Jesus lived a hard life, a place where we'll find here that he, had, he was homeless. He had no place to lay his head. Foxes have dens or right, birds have nests, but the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. He had no wealth. And he died a, a betrayed and abandoned death outside a city on an old rugged cross. And every one of his followers, according to church history, except for one, and that wasn't because they didn't try, died the death of a martyr. But we see here, that isn't just something that follows along after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's right here. The greatest single moment, probably for many of us could imagine, that God would express his pleasure over us, that blessing that Jesus experienced was immediately followed by a test and trial. Let me speak to that, that, that word of test or trial. That, that, can, that can sometimes be unhelpful, but it is part of God's will. It is part of, we see throughout, throughout Scripture, that God would test Right? Think of the story of Job. Right? And the purpose of a test isn't for God to figure out something. Right? That's, uh, that's where we can get this distorted. Right? You probably in, in school had examinations or tests, and, and it was to expose what you did or did not know. Right? And, and that, was, that was informative, not only for you, but, but certainly even for the teacher who would give you a grade based on what, they, what was revealed. That's not helpful. The, the Lord knows exactly what's going on. 
But these tests are, in, instead, they're meant, to see, they're meant to be seen as like a trial of purification. So this, it's proving, right? Whether you get an A on the test, you've proved, like you've proven that you know what you're talking about, or at least you've proven that you ascertained the, you know, the content you're being tested on. But, but in this case, like the idea of testing is a proving. It's a picture of purifying metals, like heating up metals to a heat, uh, to, to a heat so high that they become molten and their impurities rise to the surface. That test purifies them. It, it reveals them. Not, not so that God would know what this is like. It's not like when God tries or tests, it's, and, and we love that. I, I, gave you, I gave you the story of Job so you would even see that. The story of Job begins with, okay, Satan, test this guy out. God knew exactly what it would reveal. It would reveal all the impurities in Job. It would reveal some of the flaws of, of his beliefs and the beliefs of his friends. And yet, in the end, what we see about God comes to light. So in this case, Jesus enters into a testing, a proving. But I want you to see that's always the case. That's always the case. For lots of reasons. And maybe one of the first ones we see here is just the most obvious in this passage, and we'll put attention to this, is, is because once the Lord blesses, we see this from this, the whole story of the Bible, is that the Lord blesses not for anyone's own sake or for their own merit, the Lord blesses out of grace. That is, it's meritless. And the Lord blesses so that whatever or whoever he blesses will be a blessing. And that's why you saw the very end of Matthew's gospel. Did you hear who will get the, the blessing of this? The, the nations. Go to the nations. This is, this is too big for you. This is going to go through you. And so in that sense, if that's the case, if God is doing something to bless you and through you others, then it stands to reason the enemies of God would want to stop it. And so one of the obvious things we see here is that as God blesses Jesus, expresses delight on him, introduces him to the world, it stands to reason that the enemy would want to stop it. And in God's mercy, he allows that so that something can be known. Something can be seen. Now, I'll tip my end here. When, when, when we experience testing, it almost always, I say almost, but I, I think always is probably the right word, but I'll, let's leave the door open there. When we experience testing, it almost always reveals imperfection. It reveals something about us. But notice what happens when Jesus experiences testing. Did you catch it? He stood up obediently under each temptation. So, in that sense, every gift brings temptation. Every gift brings along with it temptation. That shouldn't shock us. Instead, it should, I think, encourage us. It should, it should allow us to, to think about when we experience difficulty, it's usually a, a result of something that God is doing to reveal himself to us and bring to light something that maybe we don't know. So, the progression for Jesus, in this case, and even for the disciples, is that they receive a gift, they go through trial and temptation, and then they experience fruitful ministry and walk with the Lord. It's, that's just the routine. The gift of the Spirit here brings trial. And that's because every single gift we receive, we in some sense are tempted to be vain or conceited about it. The gift of beauty does just that. The gift of beauty tempts to be vain and conceited. The gift of strength it comes with the temptation to, to dominate and to abuse. The gift of intellect 
comes with the temptation to manipulate and deceive. The gift of wealth comes with the temptation to indulgence and gluttony. The gift of humor comes with the gift of, or comes with the temptation of mockery and scoffing. Do you get that? These are good gifts that come from God, but every good gift is meant to be a blessing to pass on to others. And it brings with it a temptation for us to simply serve ourselves with it. And we're prone to be incredibly selfish. So one of the lessons that we learn here as we kind of see what Jesus is like and what he's calling us into in light of what he's done for us is maybe that it begs a question, where are you prone to be the most selfish? Where are you prone to to feel the most entitled? Where do you feel the most slighted or disrespected? That is likely a place where God has blessed you or is blessing you, and instead of seeing that as a, a grace that you will pass on to others, you're hoarding to just bless yourself. This is for us why why serving in a local church is so vital and formative. It's powerful. It it does something to us. It is an active affront to the work of the enemy in your life and the work of the enemy in the lives of the people around you. To say, okay, God's given me time, energy, whatever whatever it is, whatever that thing is. Remember, wherever you find yourself being the most selfish, right? that's the place where God means to bless others. Right, the things that you, you kind of, oh yeah, I'm really, I'm really, ooh, right? and you, you try to slip it into every conversation, right? You try to drop it, you know, smashing your toe, dropping that name, and trying to get your resume into the conversation any way you can. Here's what, I actually don't want you to stop doing that. I, I don't want you to stop that. Instead, I want you to repent and begin to do that for God's glory. Think of those as blessings that you're meant to bless others with. You're wicked smart, great, good for you, right? Who are you blessing with it? Is it possible God is, wants, to, wants you to have humility and, and pass on understanding and wisdom to others, right? You got a big house. Cool. Then God's called you to be hospitable, to wreck that house with the, with the traffic of lost people and, and people who need comfort and, and need to be welcomed, right? Or whatever. Like, I'm successful. I'm a big, good for, You've got influence. You, whatever it is, then God has given you a platform. God has given you a blessing, not because you deserved it. After all, you didn't do it. And even then, maybe you're like, well, I did. I earned this. I am a hard worker because I'm a Midwesterner, and that's how you get to heaven, right? Good for you. You're a hard worker. Now work for others. Use it to serve other people. Stop working for your own gain. You get the idea? That place where you're most likely selfish and conceited is a blessing in which you're tempted to think that you deserve it. So let's look at the temptations that came from this blessing. He gives us three here tells us about three. This is very similar we find in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark, but there's this great blessing, this gift of God's presence in Jesus' life, and then, and then the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to test, to reveal. Now, I believe that, again, that test and trial is a revelation for us. We see something about Jesus here. Something about Jesus is revealed that, that encourages and changes us. So, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You think, right? And the tempter came to him and said to him, I mean, this is as weak as you get, right? I I get hangry. I'm probably hangry right now. Like right now, I'm 
probably irritable more than I should be because it's getting close to lunch, right? And his weakest moment, the tempter came to him and said, all right, if you're the son of God, and I'll correct here, this is, this is, that word if isn't really here. It's just the, the ESV's best way to kind, of, uh, to kind of say, like to make a, a sentence that makes sense in English. Um, more literally, it just, without the if, it just simply says, you are the son of God, right? It's, it's, don't think here that it's, it's not like, A, Satan doesn't know. Satan knows who Jesus is. It's not, it's not a mistake. He knows exactly who he is. And B, it's not that Satan is trying to like somehow, you know, whittle at his self-esteem. Like, well, if you really are, like, this is not in, this is not in question. These things are known. But in that sense, he's, he's using us as a challenge. All right, you're the son of God. Now command these stones to be loaves of bread. And so he tempts them in great hunger with bread. So let's just look at that temptation as it is. This, this is probably one of the most powerful ones because the other ones flow from this. He tempted him with something that inherently was good, or at the very least is like amoral. It has no particular like moral quality. Like, like if you were to say, like, if, if I were to ask a question, like, is bread good or evil? You'd be like, I, I don't even know how to answer that question, right? And so that's, that's really powerful and really important here. Because the temptation that comes to Jesus isn't through an evil thing. It's a, through a morally neutral thing that the enemy tempts him to think is something that can replace what God alone can give. And so Jesus responds, quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So notice the three temptations. Food when he was starving. Two, assurance of the Father's care. Did you hear that? Like, throw yourself off and see if God loves you, right? Knowing that God loves you, that's a good thing. That's not, that's not a bad thing. And the last thing, like, glory of the kingdoms that would belong to Jesus, a glorious king. Those are, and, and in many says these are all things that God would and will give Jesus. And yet there was something about it that, there was something about these that caused a temptation for Jesus. And they're meant to, I think, be indicators of what causes temptation for us. And so that first one, bread. Bread. <laughs> bread is morally neutral, neither good nor bad. And yet what Satan was tempting Jesus to do here was to see it in such a way and to, to begin to display his power in such a way that replaced what God alone gives. And Jesus refuted him by quoting Deuteronomy 8 and saying, look, the thing that sustains us is not bread. It's God's word to us. And so right there, I mean, that's a sermon for another day, but like the things of this world won't sustain you. But what God says about you last forever. The things in this world won't satisfy you, but what God says about you will. And so he responds by, by quoting that and saying, look, this, this isn't what this is meant to be. And so just, just think in terms of this, like he tempted Jesus with something that was particularly morally neutral and yet it was seen as, or the temptation would be that he would take the place of God. So the key word there is alone. And I want to invite you to take this, this prophetic message of Jesus as seriously as you possibly can. You do not live by fill-in-the-blank alone. 
The temptations were bread, to be saved, and then to gain the whole world. So first is physical needs, physical satisfaction, physical pleasure, physical comfort. comfort. These were offered to Jesus in this bread. And yet Jesus says, even though those are things that God gives, if God alone, if I don't find my sense of self and worth in God alone, then these things will be a, a sorry substitute. And that isn't what Jesus came to do. And I would argue that isn't what we are ultimately called to be and to do, to be people who live physically comfortable, physically satisfied, right? Physically easy lives. And so in this sense, these maybe necessary things like bread, they're lesser things, but they have a strange way in the hands of the enemy to demand our allegiance, don't they? They demand from us what God alone deserves. And you know how this feels, right? Something that's particularly neutral, right? Like friends. Everybody wants to have friends until you need friends. And then you cease to be friends. You actually use people to get something because you seek something that God alone can give, namely comfort and welcome. Morally neutral things. For some of you, it's success or your job, right? Your, your pursuit of achievement. Morally neutral things, like is that achievement good or bad? It's impossible to say just based on that, not intrinsically anyway. And yet, doesn't it have the power to own you and control you? Doesn't it have the power to become that thing that's always over the horizon, that never satisfies, but, but demands your allegiance every single day? For some of you, it's relationships, right? Like, oh yeah, once, once, I, you know, once, I, once I have this relationship, then everything, everything will be fine, right? All my problems will go away. Until you talk to any married people, right? <laughs> like, they're like, yeah, that's, yeah that, that worked great for 10 seconds, right? And then I showed up. And it seems silly, but that's what, that's what, that's what the enemy is doing. It, it seems like bread would be a strange kind of temptation, that, God, that Jesus would use his power to make bread out of stuff. That seems like not a big deal. That seems like something Jesus might do. That would even make a great story. Jesus is like, I'm hungry. Bang. And here's the thing. He will make bread miraculously. That story's coming. And yet what we find here is the temptation to take a morally neutral thing that, that takes the place of God, that demands from us what God alone deserves. And so get this. this is, there's two stories on display here. We'll get to him at the end here, but like one is the picture of Adam being tempted in the garden and failing. And the second one is the wandering of Israel. The wandering of Israel in the wilderness and turning against God. And Jesus succeeds in both. What we see here is a, in many ways like a, a, a recap of, this is, a, this is like the, the thrust of the sermon, it's a recapitulation of this story of Israel. And that's a terrible word. I dare you to try to fit into a conversation. But it, scholars use this as the best. It's one of the best words, right? That is, it's a, it's a fulfillment. It's a reenactment. It's a restating in such a way that it, that it gains momentum and has deeper meaning, right? So like, it's not a helpful word in many ways. Like you shouldn't say to your husband or wife, like, I just want to recapitulate my commitment and affection for you. And unless you're like, I don't know, 
English majors, in which case that's probably really a good move. But like for the rest of us, like, and the, yeah, go, go recapitulate, right? But for the rest of us, there's, there's something going on here, and I want you to look into it. Jesus is fulfilling something. He is in himself taking the place of wandering Israel. And notice, when Israel was wandering in, in the wilderness, do you remember what they had every day? Food. Food that showed up every day. They had a, like a, they had a, a pillar to follow in the day, a, a cloud and a pillar of fire by night. What a miraculous existence. And food that showed up. And they had the audacity to say, God, I don't like this. I would rather go back to Egypt and live in oppression than to live in this. To trust in you every day, right? Because it demands that, that kind of like, it demands a trust, doesn't it? You have to say to God, all right, thanks for feeding me today. But are you going to feed us tomorrow? Is tomorrow the day you finally stop feeding us? Do you hear the trust that's demanded in that? But notice, the thing that they didn't need was, it wasn't, like the thing that the people in Israel were lacking wasn't bread. It was trusting God. It was experience, experiencing gladly his presence. So back to those list of things that like demand your allegiance, that tend to control your life, Here's, including bread. I want you to eat, right? I want you to eat, but I don't want you to ever eat as though your existence depends upon it. I want you to be a friend. I want you to have relationships. For some of you, some of you not, but for some of you, I want you to marry. But I don't ever want you to marry as though your existence depends upon it. I want Christians to thrive in the marketplace, right? I want Christians to be faithful. I want you to, I mean, I want you to guys make a, make a, be successful and make a ton of money, right? I want you to thrive in your jobs, but I never want you to thrive in your job as though your existence depends upon it. Because that thing that seems okay in the hands of Satan has a powerful, has a powerful ability to reveal something about us. An impurity that comes to the surface. That down deep, we love that more than anything else. Hear the words of Jesus and fill in the blank. You do not live by the acceptance of your peers alone. You do not live by the absence of discomfort alone. You do not live by success alone. You hear it? God alone gives us what we need. So I want you to have hobbies, right? It's a great place to interact with unbelievers in our city. But I don't ever want you to have a hobby as though your life depends upon it. I don't ever want you to think that your job, your hobby, your relationships is telling you the truth when it's, when it, when it's demanding everything and offering everything. You don't live on that alone. Bread does in a very small and temporal way what God alone can do eternally. Same is true of all those other things that run your life. Your job, your relationships, they do in a, a very temporal, small way, right? They satisfy, they comfort, they're a blessing. But notice, even this morning, we don't sing, come blessings, Right? We say, forget the blessings, come fount. I want the source of every blessing. The blessings pass away. They, they tarnish, they gather rust and dust and thieves can steal them. God, give me what only you can give me because I need it. So don't give to the temporal, even if it's good, what belongs to God alone. 
That's the first temptation. The second temptation kind of follows from it. It says that then the devil took him. Now, this is strange. The next two things, evidently, like, the devil is allowed to, like, like Jesus, I mean, this is something else. Jesus is like, hey, sure, devil, take me here, right? Like, as if he consented to it. I'm just, I'll point out here, you're not Jesus. That's not a, don't do that. Like, ah, oh, I'm just, I'm just going to follow the devil over here to see what might, like, I know, you, I'm just going to tell you what you're going to find out. You're not going to like it, right? So Jesus is not us, but he's like led by the devil to the holy city on the pinnacle of the temple. And the devil says, like, fine, throw yourself off. And then what you'll experience then is God saving you. He will command his angels concerning you. And he's quoting a beautiful psalm, Psalm 91, right? Here it is, verse 11, 13, 11 12. But, but notice the devil can quote the, quote the scripture. The enemy can use it. The devil knows the Bible better than you. Uh, the cool part is that the devil doesn't know the Bible better than Jesus, right? So listen to, the, listen to what he's quoting. He's quoting the scripture. This is, he's not deceiving or distorting in some way. He's just taking it out of context. And I'll tell you, this is kind of cool. So, for he will command his angels concerning you. It's a messianic psalm, right? To guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so the, the enemy is, it seems like the devil is like doing something here that makes sense. Like, yeah, you could, hey, Jesus, if you jumped off here, you would, you would totally be saved. It would, it would totally save you. But what does he say? He says, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. As if to say, I know God will do that. But this is not the way. This isn't the mechanism. This isn't the means. And here's how you know it, because I, I, I got to think, this is, he quoted Scripture back to, he quoted Deuteronomy again, back to, back, to the, back to Satan. But I like to think that he was muttering under his voice the following verse after what the enemy quoted. Verse 13, you will tread on the lion and the adder. Adder is a snake. The young, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. I love that. Right? It'd, be, it'd be cooler if, the, if like Satan didn't quote it in context, right? Because one of the promises of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is that even though sin would come and destroy and cause irreparable harm, the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake one day would face off. And the seed of the woman would have his, have his heel bitten by the snake, but the snake would have his head crushed by the seed of that woman. Right? And so it's, it's as if to say this messianic fulfillment, Jesus was like, yeah, I know that psalm, Satan. I know that psalm. You're, you're not going to want to quote the rest of that psalm. I see what you're doing. And so he quotes Deuteronomy again and says, look, you don't test the Lord. You don't test the Lord. You trust the Lord. In the end, this test and trial isn't for me, or isn't for the Lord, it's for me. I know I can trust the Lord. To the last temptation. Again, it says, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. And it quotes scripture again, quotes Deuteronomy 6. You shall worship the Lord your God and him, alone, him only shall you serve. Do you hear it? It's kind of like a, a recapitulation of the first temptation, right? Like, I, I can't take into my own hands what God alone provides. It's not my place to, to get something here. Instead, I'm to look to God alone, to trust and serve Him alone. And so, friend, I want to draw, just, just practically, some people think that this, like, this quoting of Scripture is... Uh, 
is it kind of like a how-to of how to deal with temptation? If you'll just quote scripture, you'll make it through temptation. I mean, that removes faith and trust. Instead, it sees scripture and God's word as like an incantation. It sees it more as like witchcraft, like if you just quote the scripture at the right time. I can tell you personally, I have, I have quoted scripture while sinning, right? Like, like uh, it, and, and here's how, that shouldn't surprise you or me. Uh, you can quote scripture while being Satan. So like this isn't meant to be like a how-to of here's how you stand up under temptation. But it is meant to, you're meant to see something through Jesus as a means by which we are fed, as a means by which we are sustained, and God reminds us of who he is, and that is through scripture. And if, maybe if you're new to the Bible, maybe if you pull out one of those blue Bibles, I think it's on page 87. You can find in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 8, the three places, or the three verses he quoted are all in chapter 8 and chapter 6, okay? And if you, if you make your way in that blue Bible, and this isn't true maybe if you have a larger print Bible like mine, but here's the point I would say in this. like, There was enough in one page of Scripture to defeat the enemy. Be comforted by that, Christian. Like God's Word is sufficient to destroy the enemy. And maybe, it's, maybe that'll work differently. From like, There's enough in four pages in your Bible to do whatever the analogy may fall apart there. But, but think of it as like God's Word actually is a weapon against the enemy. And Jesus perfectly wields it. Satan does not, and often we don't either. It's not an incantation, but instead, it's something that when God speaks, things happen, including the falling of the enemy. That at least is an encouragement for us that understanding or, or knowing and memorizing the Bible isn't enough. Many people will miss the gospel from the distance between their head to their heart. It will be a, a really witty, smart thing that circulates in their head but never sinks to change their own heart, that never soften them towards people, right? Have you met that person? Have you ever been that person? Like you know a whole lot about Jesus and you don't look much like him? Been there? Right? See the temptation here that, that, that you can know scripture and yet misuse it and it not actually make you a believer and not actually give you grace and comfort. So Jesus, in that sense, is a fulfillment he is a fulfillment of the longings of so many things. And I want to wrap up on that. The New Testament elsewhere makes reference to this, alludes to it, and speaks to what's really going on here. Not only is there enough in one page of Scripture, right, to silence the enemy, but notice some principles here that we can learn and I think be warned by and instructed by. Satan contradicted everything that was said in his baptism. The end of chapter 3, Jesus experiences the pleasure and love of God. God saying loudly and clearly for all to hear, I love this one. I am pleased in this one. This one is mine. And notice, in what was affirmed and declared by God in that baptism was an invitation for Satan to come and tempt and dispute. And I want to tell you the same thing is true. The same thing is true for us as believers. All that's true of us in baptism, right? That we were buried with Christ, resurrected. Now there's no condemnation. There's no shame. Where we're free from sin, death, and hell because of Jesus. Satan wants to contradict every single one of those things. And for Jesus, he does. Satan contradicted every single one of those promises. And Satan's work will be for you, in that sense, to contradict all of these things as well. 
Now, maybe you're hung up on that. I'm saying a whole lot about devil and Satan, a personified evil, and that sounds really crazy. My only warning is from one author would say it this way, is like whenever we kind of like make the supernatural natural, we tend to elevate the natural to the supernatural. We tend to swap it. And so if you're like, hey, there's no supernatural evil, that's fine. Uh, But that just means probably in your life there's some natural thing that you've elevated to supernatural status. And so for us, we, we, we believe that God's word reveals to us that that evil that's working, that really lurks around and makes you miserable, makes you depressed, full of despair, it's not an accident. You know why it feels tailor-made? Sometimes you're like, this is the worst day ever. It's like someone orchestrated this day to be miserable for me. It's like, that's exactly what happened. And uh, there's, you know, many scholars would say it this way, is that like one of the, one of the devil's greatest achievements is, is to make people believe, stop believing in him, right? So there is an evil, and, and that evil is, is working actively to contradict all that's good, all that God says to you in Jesus, And that blessing, as we saw, comes with that temptation. That gift, that blessing of the gospel, of new life in Jesus, is a target on your back for Satan. So just let me offer this as a word of warning, right? Like, if if by some chance I accidentally preach a good sermon, there's a sense in which you should be like, oh, that's really great, I appreciate that. And there's this other sense in which you should be like, holy smokes, this is about to be tested. This is about to come at me. I know that's true for me, right? Whatever I tell you on a Sunday, I, in the next like 48 hours, it's like, it's like the enemy shows up like, oh yeah, really? I, I tell you that not so that you'll be afraid, but so you'll know, oh, this is why this is happening. God's given me a blessing that the enemy does not want me to have. God has granted to me something freely that, that, that the devil wishes he had and will do anything he can to stop you from wielding it faithfully. So notice, Christian, remember what was said to you at your baptism. You were, you were dead in your sin and you were, are now raised by faith in Christ. And all, that's been, all that you've been accused of is now canceled. That debt has been nailed to the cross along with Jesus. But in this place of greatest blessing, that's where the enemy wants to work. I tend to warn people this is like... It, for especially new believers, if I, if I baptize you, you probably heard me say this. We talk about this, the, the parable of the sower. Jesus says that this kingdom that he's bringing will look like this, that there'll be seed and it's thrown, and the seed is the word, this good news of who Jesus is, but it falls in different places. And Jesus says it's okay that one out of four actually falls in a fertile soil. But one of those places is it falls on a soil where, where it says that a bird comes and will pluck it up and eat it. And Jesus explains to his disciples that that's the enemy. And I would just tell you, like, if maybe in this room and you're a new Christian, or this is new, maybe you're contemplating what it means to believe in Jesus. I, I, here's the cool, I want you to believe, I want you to trust, but this is one thing I will never do. I will never, I will never like soft sell you that gift that is on your way. God's opening your eyes to receive and believe. It's starting to give you comfort, right? It's starting to release you from all sorts of evil things. It's starting to give you peace where you once had fear, right? Those are all things the enemy wants to pluck from you. And he will try everything he can to do it. Satan contradicted every one of those blessings. But notice what happened. Jesus passed all the tests that we fail. Remember when I told you, that here's, here's the way we kind of think of this in light. Jesus obeyed, in the, in, Jesus obeyed when tempted by Satan where Adam gave in and failed. This story of meeting Satan and being tempted is a story that comes from the beginning of the Bible. 
And Jesus steps in as a new and better Adam and does what Adam and you and I, united in Adam by our own sin, failed to do as well. But Jesus succeeded. But in the wandering in the wilderness, notice Jesus does something very similar. Jesus obeyed in the wilderness where Israel failed. So here's the thing. You, may not even, you don't even believe this whole Adam thing is real, and, you, and you're not Jewish. And so you might be wondering, so what? What's this got to do with me? Friend, notice Jesus, for you and for me, passed all the tests that we fail. You know, all those places where you wish you lived up, all those places where you wish you really were enough, Jesus was enough so that the pleasure of God would rest upon you and me. Notice, these are temptations for Jesus and for us. We really wish the Messiah would come, and this, most people, and give those three things, don't we? Personal, physical comfort. Isn't, I mean, isn't that, doesn't that occupy most of our prayers? <laughs> Lord, make my life better and more prosperous. Right? What's the second thing? Lord, save us from, from our bad decisions, right? Like, throw yourself off, and Jesus will, or God will save you, right? And that another one of our prayers? Like, God, we wish our Messiah, but hey, like, deliver me from, a, like, deliver me from the consequences of my bad decisions. I jumped off a, you know, I jumped off a tower. Um, God save me, right? And then the third thing, power and dominion. Isn't that, what, isn't that one of the other things? We want influence. We want power. We want success. We want achievement. Those temptations aren't just for Jesus. Those are temptations that you and I face. And if you were honest with yourself, you would have to admit they own you. They're a place where Satan has you wrapped around his finger. And he can pull those strings anytime he wants. And those failures that leave you in distress and despair, I have good news for you. Jesus succeeded in all of those ways on your behalf. Look at the temptation that Satan offers to Jesus. Jesus, it's not that he won't get these things. He's saying, do this without suffering. He's saying, Jesus, do this without the cross. Whatever you do. And man, isn't that, isn't that a wild temptation Satan would offer? Like Satan offers us like lust and greed and Satan offers us like distractions of like pornography and, and hobbies and, and jobs and relationships. Like, like, Satan offers us a little bit. Look what Satan offers Jesus. I'll give you anything. I'll give you the whole world if you'll just stop what you're doing. And that ought to make sense to us, right? Remember when Jesus tells his disciples, hey, I'm going to go to the cross. You're not going to like it. And what does Peter do? He's like, over my dead body. And what, is, what does Peter do? Or excuse me, what does Jesus say to Peter? Does he say, that's a great idea, Peter. What does he say? He sees right through that word that Peter said to the author of that word found in the wilderness. And he says, you get behind me, Satan. I'm going somewhere. I'm going to fulfill all the, broke, all, the, all the broken dreams and the desires. I'm going to fulfill all the stories that ended badly. I'm going to end right. All the desires and longings for, that people have for satisfaction, I'm going to give to them. I'm going to take their place, Satan. Don't tell me to get this kingdom without the price. And Jesus succeeds where you and I regularly fail. Here's how Paul tells the Corinthians, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Right? Isn't that, I mean, that, that speaks to the bread alone, doesn't it? Right? Like, oh man, I wish I had bread, right? I wish I had success. I wish I had a relationship, right? And Paul's like, man, that would be great. That would be neat. But if that's all you have, you're the most pitiable person. Instead, we know that Christ was resurrected. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And now he gives us a little sermon about this particular passage. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, right, all the ways that we give in to temptation, all die. But in the same way, did you hear that? In the same way that we all give in to temptation, Christ and all of us in Christ are made alive because he did what Adam could not. He succeeded where Israel had failed. It goes on to say that the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, oh, not dust, he's from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those of us who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Do you hear why it's such a big deal that Jesus fulfills the story? Right? Does recapitulate all of a sudden sound like a really great word? Right? He fulfills the longings of the story of Adam, of Israel, and everyone else. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that is Adam, we look like him when we sin, right? We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Romans 5 says it this way, and we'll end on this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Did you hear the two stories? Remember? Adam in the garden, Moses and Israel in the wilderness. And as death reigned in those stories, and even every moment since, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Did you hear that? Adam's failure was just meant to point us to Jesus' success. Israel's wandering was meant to point us to, to Jesus finding us. Friend, the wandering, the temptation you now face, is meant to whet your appetite for the satisfying work of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of our hungering and our wandering. In all the places where we long and feel unsatisfied, Jesus offers himself to satisfy you. In all the places where we feel lost and meaningless, Jesus comes and says, you're mine, experience the delight of God. And God allows those longings to rise in us, to be exposed in us, not to shame us, but to satisfy us. Jesus was tempted by Satan here in a way that we can't fully understand. But the author of Hebrews gives us an explanation. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But instead, we have one who in every respect has been tempted, as we were, yet without sin. Now let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, Satan wanted Jesus to not go to the cross. Satan wanted Jesus to be a king like an earthly king, to usurp authority, to serve himself, to feed himself, to be a public spectacle, to have earthly fame and influence. And for the joy set before him, Jesus said, no, I will endure the wilderness so that those who wander will find rest. I will endure temptation for those who are burdened by it that they might find hope. 
because of this. Hold on to this. God gives us meaning and hope. The only thing that will satisfy you is hearing what God says to you. That because of Christ, you are a delight to Him. You are pleasing to God. Oh, you are pleasing to God because of what Jesus has done. You're a delight to God because He has succeeded where you have failed. And the enemy, even starting now, wants to yell at you or whisper at you, find satisfaction in other things, find meaning in other things, live on lesser things, delight in lesser things. It's not a big deal. It's not a big thing. Find your delight in sex and sexuality. Find your delight in money. Find it in success. Find it in your team and being right and winning. Find it in fill in the blank. But whatever you do, don't you dare find it in the cross. Don't find it in Jesus taking your place. Don't find the fulfillment of your own story in his. The good news is in that last little bit, isn't it? Be gone, Satan. And just like that, did you hear it? Verse 11, I'll leave you with this. What happened? Devil left. Jesus has succeeded where we have failed, and he has the authority to bring hope where there once was desperation. He has the authority and power to cast out all evil and replace it with his own presence. And now we experience the pleasure of God because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray and thank him for that. Jesus, thank you so much that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Uh, you have occupied a space that we could not tolerate ourselves. God, thank you that you, uh, that you do not leave us in the wilderness. You do not leave us in our wandering and temptation, but instead you redeem us and you take on that temptation so that we can approach you and experience grace at your throne. God, for many of us this morning... Um, that might seem like just a mystery too good to be true. The longings of our heart, the despair that we experience daily, it seems too much. The temptation that seems to own us, God, it seems like it's too much. Lord, I pray that you would, in many ways, help us to quit trying to succeed in places we cannot. Help us to give up and turn from, repent of, trying to find meaning and success in these things. And help us to receive as a gift the unmerited favor that you have granted all of Christ's success to us by faith. God, I know for many this seems too good to be true. Help us to receive this gift, an overwhelming grace that you grant us. Maybe for the rest of us, we've known this. We see this, but, but we feel the, the weariness of wandering. We feel the weariness of temptation. Would you remind us of what was true at Jesus' baptism? And for those of us united in Christ, what's true and what was proclaimed to be true at ours. You are pleased with us. You delight in us, not because of ourselves, but because you have loved us and freely granted to us all the pleasure that you poured on your Son. Help us to feel that pleasure. Jesus, thank you that you are the worthy sacrifice without blemish. You prevailed where we have failed. You have succeeded where Adam, Israel, and we have constantly failed. You are worthy of our worship. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.